Support Narrative's independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative and check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe and download. That was the moment that defined how the world knew Rudy Giuliani up until very recently. A myth made in real time beamed into the homes of millions of people around the world and an enduring image ultimately, one that really belied his true actions and intentions back then and also his track record as a mayor in New York City, which some people credit as being pretty amazing, but you know, others would disagree that he was that good a mayor. Now he's under investigation again, as you know, by the very prosecutor's office that he used to run, the Southern District of New York. He's no longer America's mayor. That's no longer his starring role. Now his role is uh, Donald Trump's bag man or, or Donald Trump's errand boy running around the world doing all sorts of shady deals for the president of the United States. We've seen his handiwork in Ukraine, and I'm going to explain to you tonight how his work and uh, Donald Trump are, are engaged in something similar but different in Libya. It involves Libya's massive oil supplies. It involves them manipulating our, uh, our, our own foreign policy here in the United States to their own will, to their own, you know, to their will or maybe Putin's will, who knows, but in order to get that oil, that really rich oil out of Ukraine. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Narrative Live. We have a special report tonight and a special day because in just a few minutes from now, maybe 40 minutes from now, they're going to start marking up the impeachment uh, resolutions, the um, articles of impeachment. Long time coming for many people I know who are fans of the show and, and many of my friends in, the, in this weird social media world that we've created over the last three years, which has been, I always say this, the, the biggest crowdsourced investigation in history. Um, and uh, you know, today's impeachment certainly is a credit to all the credible investigators at the FBI and everybody else, certainly these legislators in the, white, in, the, uh, in the House, but also a credit to every single person who spent the last three years researching endlessly, endlessly, endlessly every single piece of Donald Trump's life. Uh, and we all know each other as sort of hashtags and, and ats here, and we never, might not even know each other's faces. Uh, but it's a, it's a tribute to everybody that we got here today. So I want to congratulate all of you for this day. I'll get you to the uh, hearing on time, I hope, although this is a long show. It's kind of complicated. I'll do it as quickly as I can. We begin in Saint-Jacques-Cap-Ferrat, a monument to excess situated halfway between Monaco and Nice on the French Riviera, and a magnet for celebrities and money people of all types. In June 2016, even the somewhat jaded local media was curious about the wedding du jour. Here's the bride now, the 21-year-old Anastasia Fuchs, wearing a $5,000 dress, and that's her father by her side, Pavel Fuchs, the Ukrainian oligarch, who's said to be worth as much as $270 million. He's an ally of Vladimir Putin and also reputed to be a corporate raider. 
He's got into a lot of trouble. He's been barred from the U.S. He's facing fraud charges in Moscow. And, of course, he's a friend of Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani. Absolutely no expense spared for a wedding spectacle which had everybody asking questions. You see, the bride was dating a nice Jewish boy from Ukraine. They were expected to get married. Then she abruptly decided to break up with him and marry her groom. And yet she wouldn't even show her groom's face on her Instagram account. Who is he? Masoud Abdul Hafiz. If you recognize the name, that's because his grandfather was Muammar Gaddafi's right-hand man, sort of the henchman for Gaddafi. They fled Libya to Egypt when Gaddafi died, and then Masoud and his brother Ahmed finally moved to London where they set up shop and, and lived normal lives. Turns out Mr. Abdul Hafiz had come into a supply of Libyan oil which needed distribution. Not just any Libyan oil, ISIS Libyan oil. And so it seems that Anastasia was married off as something of an insurance policy. Now, uh, that music, Skyfall, is actually playing at the wedding. It's so remarkable because, in fact, this entire story is very much like a James Bond story. And that music, of course, from, from the latest James Bond movie, or one of them in any event, the reason I say it's like James Bond is because Pavel Fuchs really is a, a, I think he might actually be a real Secret Service agent for the Russians. He operates like one. Many people speculate he is. Um, and certainly that's the way uh, the, the Russians like to roll with their oligarchs. Um, and the skepticism around this wedding not only involves the fact that he's a secret agent and his daughter is marrying a, a grand, uh, grandson of a Libyan henchman, it's also because the Fuchs family would not even mention the Abdul Afiz's name in any public statements. It would just come to our daughter's wedding, but we won't tell you who she's marrying. And then on top of that, there's this whole thing where she wouldn't show his face on Instagram, except for one picture where it's covered up. There's also this. I mean, this could be the reason why. Because it turns out that the grandfather is, is on a UN sanctions list, the UN terror sanctions list. And there you see his name, Masoud Abdul Hafiz. That's the grandfather. That's not the guy that she married. Colonel in the armed forces commander. It also says he was part of military intelligence in Libya, which anyone who, I mean, it's got to say Russia to you. You've got to yell Russia to you. And so it's, it seems to bear certain credence that the Abdul Fiz family is, uh, was involved in some nefarious stuff, uh, as the grandfather was, but maybe as the, uh, as the uh, children are and the grandchildren are too. What makes it even more complicated is that, of course, uh, Pavel Fuchs is really, really close to Donald Trump and to Rudy Giuliani. And and particularly close. I mean, this is not just your, your average kind of, hey, I know that guy, or maybe I used to know that guy, but I don't know him now. I'm talking about real close. Uh, in fact, my findings are that uh, Donald Trump, his associates and his family have had business ties in some form or another with Pavel Fuchs for over a decade, dating back to 2004, in fact, which sort of places it around the time that those uh, casinos went bankrupt. Um, I can also tell you that Donald Trump's son, According to, this is a, a quote from Pavel Fuchs himself, he said, Donald Trump's son also wanted to enter the, the real estate market in Russia, and he flew to us for negotiations many times. In fact, it was so many times, because in 2008, Donald Trump Jr. visited Moscow six times in an 18-month period, starting in 2008. No one needs to go to Moscow 
that many times in a lifetime probably but in this particular case for an american businessman the son of an american businessman what was he doing in moscow yes he said we see a lot of money pouring in from russia but is that really a reason to go all the way there every every couple of months or did he have other reasons and the only other reasons people speculate could be that either he was he was getting sort of training or uh he was uh maybe you know had a girlfriend of some sort over there that's also entirely possible too now folks has ties to the Solnitsvsky, i'm running that name i'm sure organized crime syndicate and he's also friends with the ex-senator in ukraine alexander teravanasov also probably running that name um but those two people are, are linked to organized crime He's under criminal investigation in Russia, in Ukraine. He's barred from entering the United States and Mexico and Israel. And the reason he's currently not in, the, in, in Russia is because he was almost under arrest. But Vladimir Putin was able to save his arrest. But he did tell him it's maybe a good time for you to move permanently to Ukraine. There is more. I can go on forever here. Look, there's, there's two slides here of eight reasons, eight ties that Donald Trump has to Pavel Fuchs. I'll point to the biggest ones. Number one, um, in 19, sorry, in 2006, Fuchs and uh, Yeltsin's uh, son-in-law, Valentin Yumashev, uh, licensed the Trump brand for the first Moscow Trump Tower. And then if you look down the second one here, Mukhtar Abeliazov, who is responsible for a billion dollar embezzlement from a bank in Uzbekistan. That money also was invested, or some of that money was invested in the Trump Soho Tower by Felix Sater. Guess who his business partner was? Pavel Fuchs. It goes on and on. Uh, on the second slide here, and I'll put these up somewhere for you guys to check out yourself. Uh, he did try to come and see the, the inauguration. He attended the inauguration of Donald Trump um, in 2017, he paid $200,000, didn't get to go to the main event, so now he's suing over that. There is a terrific picture of, of Pavel Fuchs and Kevin McCarthy. I'm going to pull that up for you later in the show if I can find it because ah, it just tells you everything. Um, and, and there's more. But you get my point. The two of them have a, a long history as business partnerships. I'll tell you that I have phoned around to ask a lot about Pavel Fuchs, and every time I call someone in the Ukraine, it's like, it's like the automatic response to me is, oh, there's no truth to the rumor. There's no truth to the rumor. And I was like, what rumor? I haven't even asked you what I'm asking. The rumor about Pavel Fuchs, there's no, there's, no, there's no truth to it. So you know that they've obviously been primed to tell me or to tell whomever that Pavel Fuchs is not a Russian agent because that's what they will tell me. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. Because um, you know what? These, these guys have another big interest, uh, Pavel and uh, Donald Trump, that they share with each other. And that is a big interest in Libyan oil. Uh, it's a deep uh, financial well, I believe, for, pa for Pavel Fuchs. And it's also something that Donald Trump has spoken about repeatedly, about how much he would like to have all that Libyan oil, which he says is some of the finest in the world. Here he is in 2011. He did this interview with the Wall Street Journal. As far as Libya is concerned, I'd only be interested in Libya if we get the oil. Without the oil, I have no interest and we shouldn't be there. Pavel Fuchs, who has his daughter marrying a grandson of the Libyan uh, leader, Muammar Gaddafi's henchman. And, uh, and that's where we are at. We have no deal yet about oil, but we suspect there's a deal for oil. Why do we suspect there's a deal for an oil? Because it sort of happened in this way. It comes out of the Ukrainian media. Uh, there was a story that was planted, I believe, by the Russians, which explains exactly how Pavel Fuchs was able to get his hands on that oil through this marriage. And here's how the, the Ukrainian media at least tell the story.
Muammar Gaddafi met his fate hiding in a sewer duct on the side of a Libyan highway. The tragic circumstances of his death are well known, but what isn't as well known is that his death left a power vacuum into which all sorts of bad players flowed. Some of Gaddafi's loyalists fled into exile, but they returned a few years later to get the oil, and on the ground they formed an alliance with ISIS. They managed to capture 13 oil fields. Suddenly the militias and ISIS were sitting on millions of barrels of black gold, and they had no way to get it to market. They needed someone with name recognition and connections. So this is where the story gets a little bit murky, a, a little bit hard to believe, because I can't really imagine that this is the sequence of events that led to this international deal. But let's say it is, and let's tell you the story anyhow. Abdul Hafiz was attending school in London. One of his classmates was Anastasia Fuchs. They were good friends. He told her about his problem, the fact that he had all this oil that he needed to get to market. She called her father, Pavel, and asked for a favor. Pavel obliged, and he met Masood at a London hotel, and Masood asked him for a couple of tankers, as one does when you're talking to a real estate mogul. Lucky for him, Pavel Fuchs came through. He was able to hatch a plan. In Libya, there was one guy, Khalifa Haftar, who basically controlled the access to the ports. Nothing left or arrived without his approval. Khalifa Haftar was sponsored by Vladimir Putin. Super convenient for Fuchs, because he knew Putin really well. And that is how Masoud Abdelhafid and his bride Anastasia Fuchs happened to get married in June 2016 over barrels of oil which funded ISIS. Uh, Lincoln's Bible and I always have this conversation about how do you know what's disinformation and what isn't disinformation. She always tells me that, you know, you know something is, is, that there's always a kernel of truth in any bit of disinformation. In other words, you're always getting some facts that are accurate within any disinformation and then you get a lot of other stuff that is really meant to throw you off the trail. Uh, and in this case, there's a lot of interesting facts in this story about how this marriage happened and how the, the, the guerrillas were looking for somebody to help them export this oil, but there's no mention of the Russian government. And that to me is a huge hint that um, the Russians in fact planted this story because it's the Russians who really are after this oil and they're just throwing people off the scent by saying it's, it started organically. It didn't start organically. In all likelihood, this is a plan by Putin to get the oil um, out of Libya. And it's a plan that ultimately involves the United States. It's a plan that ultimately involves Donald Trump. Um, and it involves your vote, and it involves Americans' votes every time, and it involves today's impeachment process. Because like Ukraine, Donald Trump is using the American foreign policy in order to get things for Vladimir Putin and to get things for the Russian mob, and probably to get himself something too out of all of that. Uh, and that requires a lot of um, adjustment, but it's not just Ukraine. It's also Libya, it's also likely Venezuela, it's also likely North Korea. There's a scheme, as has become the term of, uh, of this entire scandal, there's a scheme for each one of Trump's incredibly poor foreign policy decisions, but also his policy priorities, which have all gotten him richer along the way. So in 2010, um, Gaddafi comes to the United Nations for the first time. Everyone's a little freaked out that he's here. and. What are we going to do with him? And then it turns out that he wants to pitch a ceremonial tent in the place that he's staying. So he proposes Central Park, and people are like, no, we don't think you want your ceremonial tent. Not in Central Park. Just 
go find somewhere else. So he tries goes everywhere, can't find anybody to help him pitch this tent or lie him to pitch his tent. He finally settles on, who else? Donald Trump. Believe it or not, Donald Trump's the guy that uh, knows Muammar Gaddafi probably than anyone else or knew Muammar Gaddafi better than anyone else. American celebrities like Martha Stewart and Ralph Lauren live nearby. Now another big name, Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi, is making news here. Mr. Gaddafi pitched his tent on Donald Trump's property in Bedford and caused a stir. It was not a camping tent, but a ceremonial tent for receiving guests. There was another time that, uh, that Donald Trump spoke about oil and Libyan oil in a very specific way. One of the most pivotal, important events of the entire 2016 Trump-Russia foldout, the way they, they slowly rolled out their campaign, the way they slowly made a deal to, to inhabit this presidency of the United States. One of the most pivotal events, which I think was probably the most important, is when the deal was done. And I think that deal was done on April the 27th, 2016, at the Mayflower Hotel. That's when, you know, remember, there was a whole bunch of um, foreign dignitaries, including Sergei Kislyak, came to attend. And it's the first time that Donald Trump spoke about his foreign policy. The whole thing was sponsored by the Center of National Interest, uh, which is a think tank in, in Washington, D.C., but it's really a front for Russian government uh, activity. And Dmitry Symes is the guy that's mentioned many times in the Mueller report as the person who sort of helped put that event together. At that event, Trump makes some really unusual but uh, pro-Russian statements, and, and he lists five specific weaknesses around the world that he knows he's going to attack if he becomes president. And one of those five things that he attacks is Libyan oil. Listen to what he says about what he wants to do with the Libyan oil. ISIS is making millions and millions of dollars a week selling Libya oil. And you know what? We don't blockade. We don't bomb. We don't do anything about it. It's almost as if our country doesn't even know what's happening, which could be a fact and could be true. So as it turns out, our country didn't know what was happening. Only Donald Trump knew what was happening at the time. I searched and searched and searched, and really that's the only modern reference that I can find uh, where there's any mention of uh, Libyan oil being taken by ISIS or being sold by, uh, by ISIS into the marketplace. In fact, there's one fact check which sort of backs up my thinking here that was published in various newspapers by factcheck.org, which you know, it talks about what Trump had just said in the Mayflower uh, just the night before. But then it says an expert on Libya's oil operations told us there's no evidence the Islamic State is producing or selling oil out of that country. Huh. Isn't that interesting? How would Donald Trump be the only person in the world to know that Libyan oil was being sold by ISIS? It just makes no real sense. But yet he seems so adamant to tell people that that's the case back then. Uh, and it turns out that that is the truth. You know, in, in 2017, we found out that there was oil being smuggled out of Libya and that it benefited ISIS. But that was much long after um, this 2016 June address. So I'm going to back up here and try reframe ISIS for you, because in, in the West, we're, we're correct in thinking that ISIS is sort of this undisciplined, aggressive group of extremist people running around the world, beheading people, causing explosions, you know, being incredibly terrorist-like organizations. But 
they're not really that. I mean, they are certainly terrorists. I'm not suggesting that they're not. I would not say that. But I will say that they're also much more frightening than just terrorists. You know, they're much more frightening than just your Al-Qaeda kind of uh, terrorists that pop up from place to place and do uh, a terror attack. Because they're, in fact, a highly organized and extremely well-funded, extremely profitable proxy army. And they run as a proxy army on behalf of various clients, not just one state, but particularly Russia and particularly Turkey. And that is basically how we got to everything in the Middle East and how we got to the situation where we are today, where ISIS is presumed to be an enemy of Russia and of the United States. But in reality, it's a proxy army for Russia. ISIS is thought of, in the West at least, as a lawless terror organization intent on destroying the United States and wanting to turn parts of the Middle East into a Sharia law ideological fortress. But in reality, it's nothing like that. It's probably better described as an outlaw transnational crime syndicate. Most of its profits come from smuggling oil, people, human trafficking, and plundering artifacts. It has clients all over the world, but most of them are nation states like Russia and Turkey who are trying to push an agenda using ISIS as a proxy power. And there's plenty of evidence to suggest that ISIS was founded by Russia in some ways. Many of its fighters come from Chechen rebels. In fact, Russia uses ISIS as a satellite proxy army to fight wars in the Middle East. But mostly, it's about the oil, whether it's Libya, Syria or Iraq, where ISIS has had strongholds. It's always been about exporting smuggled oil, billions of dollars of it, to the European and global marketplace. Over the years, there's been an international shell game when one country blames another country for smuggling the oil out of Syria, for example, as Russia did about Turkey a few years ago. The truth is, Russia has such a hold over Syria and over Libya, only it can say where the oil goes. Assad was revealed to have gotten his oil from ISIS under Russian auspices, and in Libya, much of the oil is under the control of Khalifa Haftar, also supported by Putin. In 2017, Italian prosecutors said they had cracked what they called an oil smuggling ring that was netting a million dollars a day. The syndicate illegally exported 30 shipments of oil between June 2015 and June 2016. And this is the way it worked. So oil was smuggled out of Libya on small vessels, transferred to oil tankers out in the open seas. It was then shipped to Malta, where it was relabeled as coming from Saudi Arabia and then exported to the world. This syndicate involved the Sicilian La Cosa Nostra, and Italian prosecutors were convinced that part of the organization's profits were landing up with ISIS. That's where we first found out that ISIS uh, was involved in, this, in, in benefiting from the smuggled oil coming out of Libya. A lot longer, a year or so after Donald Trump proclaimed it as fact uh, before the Mayflower crowd uh, when he was making that first uh, foreign policy address. Now, I want to put all these things that I've been talking about in context for you because we've spoken about first about a wedding that took place in June 2016. Uh, let me throw this up here and see as cheesy as this might look. I can walk you through this thing right over here. This one. That's the article uh, where uh, they explain Donald Trump uh, making that address in April 2016, and they talk about there being uh, no real facts about it. Next to it, in June 2016, which is right over here, I guess, uh, is the wedding. That's when the wedding happens in June 2016. Above it is an article um, explaining how ISIS uh, was making a million dollars a day between June 2015 and June 2016. 
um, by smuggling that oil. But that article is actually dated August 2017, which is also when uh, the kingpin, who was the smuggle, uh, smuggling kingpin out of Libya, was arrested. So that story really broke in, in August 2017, even though the investigation ended uh, in June 2016 at around the same time that this wedding took place between uh, the uh, daughter of Pavel Fuchs and Masoud Abdul Hafiz. And what's also particularly interesting for me there is that was just a month or two after Donald Trump made his address where he said that Libyan oil was going to be such a priority and getting it out of the hands of ISIS. So you, you certainly see a sequence of events that may or may not be tied. You know, it's so hard at these things to be able to predict exactly, you know, where the money's flowing, how it's flowing. We do know that around that same time, uh, sort of we're talking about um, August 2017, we know that Rudy Giuliani got a half a million dollar check from Pavel Fuchs in, in around June or August 2017. You see in that June, August 2017 section over there at the very top is a photo of his Giuliani and Associates visiting Kharkiv, starting their consulting services. And I believe that's where he got his half a million dollars from Pavel Fuchs. Um, and then below that, he's visiting Kiev, where he's talking about how uh, President Trump wants to send a message to all people in Kiev, saying, we'll make Ukraine great again. All right, so there's a lot to take in there, but there is money flowing between Rudy Giuliani and uh, Pavel Fuchs. There is a something happening with a wedding, which doesn't look like a real wedding. It looks like a wedding made out of business, and that business is the smuggling of oil. Um, there's a, a clear interest on behalf of the President of the United States in keeping that oil, on getting that oil. And so we're starting to see a framework, perhaps, of what could be one of these quid pro quo kind of schemes. But it's not as cleanly as we all like to, to think about it. You know, we all like to think about it. I give you one thing, you give me something in exchange. What they like to do, it seems, look, judging by what they did in Ukraine and what they've done here, is there is something happening over here, and I'm just doing something over here that makes this thing easier. Um, and in this case, uh, it's Khalifa Haftar. Khalifa Haftar is the warlord who has taken over a huge piece of the southern part of Libya, because there's really two sort of governments in Libya. There's the Western-backed United Nations government in Libya, and then there's the Russian-backed warlord guy named Khalifa Haftar. While the United Nations backs the internationally recognized government in Tripoli, in the eastern city of Albeda, there is a parallel government affiliated with the Tobruk-based parliament and the warlord Khalifa Haftar, and it's backed by Saudi Arabia, the UAE and Egypt. Both governments have their own central banks. The central bank in Albeda city has sold bonds worth more than $23 billion to fund its wage bill. While Britain prints out money for Tripoli, Russia has printed 10 billion dinars for the parallel administration in the east. Libya is a wealthy nation. Its $80 billion in oil revenues and foreign reserves are managed by Tripoli. But Haftar has seized oil fields in the east and the south of the country. I mean, it's, it's a significant amount of money. It's also some of the best, purest oil in the world. It's the cheapest to produce. $80 billion is a lot of money. And Russia is, is 
desperately interested in, in controlling all of that, as they are interested in controlling the, the oil in Iraq, as they're interested in the controlling the oil in Syria. And in fact, they've been able to do this during the Donald Trump presidency. They've been able to consolidate all this oil. They basically have the Syrian oil, even though we're looking after it, whatever that means. They have a bigger protest building in, in Iraq, so they can get that oil. But even still, they've had a huge investment of oil infrastructure and, and refineries and things in, in Iraq. And so throughout these three years, while all of us have been you know, blindly or chaotically wandering through uh, the crisis and the chaos created by, by Donald Trump, Putin has been getting away with pillaging uh, the entire region and basically stealing all the oil. And we could see it in Syria. We saw it in Syria recently when they uh, suddenly had to uh, withdraw the troops so, so Turkey could come in and, and do what? Do Basically, they're trying to get a hold of all those resources. Today, we found out that Turkey may invade Libya in order to clear up the mess over there. The, the mess is created by Putin. The mess is created by ISIS, which he funds. And so you can see that this is a mess created by Putin. Then he comes in, he cleans it up. And what? Well, you see, he's the hero of all things. Um, and we know this because out of the blue in, I think, April this year, Trump decided that he was switching sides. Uh, and this wasn't big news because there's so much else going on, but he decides he switched his side. So up until now, the United States government has been fully supportive of the United Nations-backed government in Tripoli, uh, which is the one that sort of the world respects. However, there is, as you mentioned, as they mentioned over there, um, you know, a different government that's controlled by Khalifa Haftar, that's backed by Russia, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, probably Israel, as we start to know these alliances, probably Turkey, as we know these alliances. And suddenly, out of the blue, Trump decides he's switching sides, he's going to um, endorse Khalifa Haftar on his own, just decides he was going to do it, no questions asked, no, not having to feel responsible for anybody else. It says here, President Trump on Friday abruptly reversed American policy towards Libya, issuing a statement publicly endorsing an aspiring strongman in the battle to depose the United Nations-backed government. Hmm. It also says here, Secretary of State Pompeo said in a statement a few days after Mr. Hifter's militia began its attack that the administration uh, at the highest levels had made clear that we oppose the military offensive. So he was going against what Pompeo was saying. Trump just decided out of the blue that he's going to back the, this, the Libyan strongman, Khalifa Haftar, and basically try to get him to install his himself as the leader of Libya and kick out the United Nations government over there. Now, I mean, <laughs> I don't think Donald Trump is particularly interested in Libya other than he wants the oil. He said as much, like he's not there for any other particular reasons. Uh, in the midst of everything that he's been facing, he, this wouldn't be a priority. The only reason this would be a priority is if he was getting something out of it, right? If, if either his buddy, Putin, who he must be partners with, he's getting something out of it, or he's getting something out of it, uh, or he wouldn't bother. Why would you suddenly switch sides? Why would you suddenly go from the United Nations-backed governments to uh, a, a warlord? It makes no sense. So my feeling is, and it's a theory that I think needs investigation. I don't, you know, I think that there's enough circumstances here, enough pattern. You know, we talk about fact, fact patterns a lot these days, and for good reason. I think there's a real fact pattern here, um, which suggests that Trump has made a lot of money off the sale of Libyan oil. Now, that same money has gone to fund ISIS. And, you know, I, it boggles my mind that the President of the United States can have anything to do with funding ISIS, anything at all to do with funding ISIS, when so many brave American soldiers have died 
fighting ISIS, the, the war on terror, which has captured our imagination for the last 20, 30 years, has caused so much death and destruction. How an American president can have anything to do with that is beyond my scope of comprehension. It drives me so nuts. But it appears that there's something here, or he wouldn't have flipped sides like that. He wouldn't have suddenly endorsed Khalifa Haftar. He would have had to do it for a good reason. And there's more to the story. I, find this, I also couldn't find confirmation of this. I found only one spot, one, uh, that says that Haftar has actually been uh, issued an arrest warrant uh, because of his activities as a, as a war, for war crimes, really, essentially. Uh, and it's like I could only find it in a South African website, but I couldn't find it reprinted anywhere else. So if anyone can find that, that would be interesting to see if he's actually, if there's an American arrest warrant. And if there's an American arrest warrant for his war crimes, uh, what about Putin who sponsors him? What about Donald Trump who might be selling the oil in order to, to benefit from there? Um, and so I think we have the makings of a scheme, a second scheme. We had Ukraine scheme, now here's Libya scheme. Lucky all of us, um, how many more? do we have to give up and how much more do we have to give up? And this scheme looks a little like this. Trump provides political cover by making these big shifts in who American supports in Libya. Putin uses that opportunity along probably with Erdogan or anybody else to consolidate things on the ground militarily. And then he seizes those resources, which is seizing that oil. And then there's all sorts of corrupt self-dealing that goes on after that while they install a puppet regime like the Haftar regime. And in the background, pulling the money chains is Rudy Giuliani, who's getting money from Pavel Fuchs, perhaps. Maybe that $500,000 was for some, something else. Maybe it was for something other crazy thing. But we know that Fuchs is interested in that oil because he's been the guy uh, moving it around. And there's Donald Trump tied to Khalifa Haftar. But in the middle, Vladimir Putin is the guy calling all the shots, getting all the benefits, scoring all the money, getting all the oil as any organized uh, mafia boss would do. And, uh, and that's sort of where I'm at. That's the end of the, of the investigation as far as we know it today. But I think that you've, you know, I think there's a body of evidence here to suggest that something really weird has gone on. There's no way Donald Trump would have suddenly shifted his allegiance like that. You know, Pavel Fuchs, on the one hand, is, is not that thrilled about his daughter having married Masoud Abdul Hafiz, and in fact, it, that marriage broke up. I'm, I'm, just, I'm told that within a year it did break up, and I'm not sure what the circumstances behind that were. But, you know, they were so embarrassed about that wedding, even though it was so flashy, that it's kind of hard to imagine why they went ahead with it, unless there was a business interest there involved. We know Putin is so aggressively working in the Middle East, trying to get all this oil, trying to get all these resources. You know, how many times has this been going on in the three years that every time Donald Trump has been, you know, gaslighting the nation or scandalizing the nation day after day after day, um, while all this kind of behind the scenes stuff has been going on, where, where Russia takes over the oil in, in, in Iraq or Libya or Syria, or Turkey suddenly decides it wants to invade party X, Y, or Z, or in Saudi Arabia, where we know there's been a nuclear scandal, or in Venezuela, where there's been a gas scandal, oil scandal again. I mean, it's beginning to look like not like it's a scheme. It looks like there are schemes, and there are so many schemes that whatever happens tonight, and it's 7 p.m. now, so I'm going to switch off because I want you guys to be able to watch the, the articles of impeachment. But keep in mind that we're not just what, talking about one thing. We're not just talking about Ukraine, and we're not even just talking about Ukraine and Mueller. We're probably talking about Ukraine, Mueller, plus, plus, plus.
Thanks very much for watching. Enjoy watching the articles of impeachment. I actually am super excited that this is happening. I hope, hope, hope um, everybody really starts focusing on these senators, um, not in a, in a vindictive attacking kind of way. I think we've got to work on their conscience. There's uh, 22 of them that are up for re-election. Let's find out who they are and let's see if we can talk them into doing the right thing for history and keep exposing all this uh, incredible corruption. Because, you know, the oil in Libya belongs to the people of Libya. It doesn't belong to Russia and it doesn't belong to Khalifa Haftar and it certainly doesn't belong to Donald Trump. And that's why America doesn't do this. We don't rape and pillage and plunder. And that's why we're looked up to in the world. I'd rather be that nation than be the other nation. Uh, Patreon.com forward slash narrative. It's where you can donate and support narrative at uh, $5 a month or more. Patreon.com forward slash narrative. Really need your support to keep us going. Uh, and otherwise, have a good night. Happy impeachment articles marking up night. And we'll see you again soon on narrative. Support Narrative's independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative and check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to subscribe and download.